Good morning, I'm Lauren Anders Brown, an independent documentary filmmaker. Being behind the camera in over 40 countries has resulted in hours, days, terabytes of footage. So much of what happens to make a shoot possible ends up on the metaphorical cutting room floor. Most of my editing used to take place in planes, trains, or whatever available coffee shop that had a decent filter single origin coffee and always using the hashtag today's office. Now I am picking up the scraps, reviewing old interviews and scrolling through my social media to give you a behind the scenes look at what it is like to travel, produce, film, direct, record, alone as my own correspondent. It was a back-to-back filming trip in 2015. The first shoot was a week filming a personal family documentary in South Carolina, something to pay the bills. The second shoot was three days in Guatemala to film the issues that can make surgery unsafe, something that causes the bills to rack up for me. I left the Southern Comforts at an uncomfortable departure time of 6 a.m., with a connection in Houston, and then straight down to Guatemala. At the last minute, my producer had to begrudgingly stay behind, and my fellow camera operator had to go ahead of me. And I was somewhere in the middle, being received by some lovely medics and an academic on arrival. We were quite the bunch, which would prove to be both entertaining and insightful in our short film shoot or academic research trip, depending on how you looked at it. After those two flights and a very long drive, the first of many, I arrived to a very warm welcome of fireworks, thankfully not gunshots, in the town of Solona. It was my first time in Guatemala, and while I was still in the early days of adapting to the challenges that arise during documentary filmmaking, I was kind of hoping the schedule would allow for some similarities to what I call island time. But at 7 a.m. on the Sunday, I could not be more wrong. Our group was guided by a steadfast anesthetist named Sandra, who worked, lived, and championed for safe surgery in Guatemala. She had huevos and café ready and waiting for us at the exact time. I was still opening my eyes while opening my mouth to eat and be out the door on what was to be a very scheduled Sunday. A windy drive that did not sit well with my huevos had us arrive at Totonicapan after 178 kilometers in the car. I was at the end of capturing content for my documentary, and so all I really needed to focus on in Guatemala was the unsafe condition of surgery. Simple. It was super specific and not really the kind of content that lends itself to pair seamlessly with academic research. It's also really difficult to capture something that doesn't exist, like safety, as I learned. I learned a lot in these three days about how little I knew about academic research. There is a system to doing it right, one that is based in years of developing and does not include Twitter polls to ensure the numbers are as accurate as possible. It involves a lot of consent, questions worded in specific formats to avoid anything leading. 
it basically went against everything I practice as a documentary filmmaker, except for the consent. And it didn't really give room to having cameras rolling like a fly on the wall or getting to the emotional questions I wanted to ask patients and doctors alike. Essentially, we had two completely different intentions. And despite our best efforts, I learned after a frustrating day one, this trip would be more like a dance, alternating who would lead if we were to get anything out of it. How appropriate for Latin America. On a Sunday, usually a day set aside for church and family, Sandra was able to get us interviews with an anesthetist and some of the cleaners and surgical staff at the hospital in Totonicapan and Cuetezalnataco. Please pardon my pronunciation of those two places. There was so much good content together that it was 4 p.m. before we were able to get lunch, which in turn ended up being dinner as we were all absolutely exhausted from the physical and emotional roller coaster of the day. The next day, fully caffeinated and grateful that Guatemala has a never-ending supply of quality coffee beans, we went ahead for another day of back-to-back -back hospitals. But this time, the academic work took the lead. At times, I wanted to stay longer and film with a patient who was having a hip surgery and her family. Those were usually the times that the ones doing the research in our group wanted to move on to the next location. So I gave in, taking the back seat, hoping the final day would give me one last opportunity to get everything I needed and, and possibly having lunch in the middle of the day. Our last hospital we filmed in was a really difficult one to physically be in and to witness. There were rows of people on stretchers as if there was a battle outside and the casualties were piling in. One woman who was getting wheeled in, you could almost see her lung collapsing. And while in the operating theater, I captured a conversation between an American anesthesiologist, Alex, who was in conversations with one of the local anesthesiologists, discussing the bigger questions medics don't always address when doing surgery. When to choose not to do it. They say that the hospital doesn't do anything, and they uh -huh. don't care, and... We're, we're on? Okay. So we'll start from the beginning. Yeah. Yeah, okay. okay. <laughs> we're getting a lot of pra practice with this, with this conversation. <laughs> so the patient we just saw looks very, very old and has had a major stroke, mm -hmm. required a ventilator, and now a feeding, and now a feeding tube. It seems to me as though she's really at the end of her life. Yes. And the, these operations, the tracheostomy and the gastrostomy, maybe they don't help her have a good life. Mm -hmm. So what I'm wondering is whether the choice of doing these procedures or not doing them, whether you think that that was, choice was discussed with her family. Well, me, uh, I don't think so. They just talked to the family about her critical state, but making a for making a tracheostomy or the, putting the feeding tube, I don't think they discussed that with the family. It's just like they follow a protocol about being ventilated so much days and unable to to walk or eat or to be conscious. Right, right. So they just did it. And why do, you, why do you think if the doctors are aware that it's not 
mandatory and that it might not really benefit the patient, why do you think they wouldn't ask the family, what, should we do this or should we not do this? I think here in Guatemala, having a really educational plan for the family, like talking to them about their critical state, is not like understandable like in other countries. So they just like keep on doing every single thing to make the patient like try to come out or, well, mm -hmm. in their terminal days, right? Right. But the doctor, I think the doctors must know that it's not, shit, that, that it's not really helping too much. Yes, but they right. keep on doing it because here in Guatemala, they, I don't know. I don't know if it's by the doctor or, or by the family itself, but they don't really understand. They don't. So they try to keep it as long as possible here in the hospital until like we tell them like, well, we, we don't have anything else we can do for mm -hmm. this. And, and he's gonna die. So they decide to take them out of the hospital and spend like the last few minutes in their house. In their, in their house. What about patients who are terminal and there really isn't a procedure, but they need pain medicine or just care to keep them clean and comfortable. Is that done in the hospitals or is that yes. something that's done, that people are expected to do at home? Well, we expect them to, to, to do that at home, but this in Guatemala is not the case. They tend to abandon their, their familiar or the patient that is with us they tend to abandon it and, well, we just take care of the patient in their last days. So they might not be able to go, go home, is that what, what you yes. mean? Yeah. yeah. Like this in, in the cases of um, cancer, like we're right, talking, right. When, when they're really terminal and they, well, they cannot feed themselves, they, they have like um, Karnowski, you know, of like one point or ten points, we say that, and um, well, we take care of them. Right, so it, you're a, stu a student, and you know, the doctors who are taking care of this patient are probably considerably older. Do you think that you will practice differently? Do you think that you, you will talk to patient families about, you know, it's not really going to help them to do this operation, maybe we shouldn't? Do you think there's a change in the generations of doctors in how you think in, uh, about these things? Of course. We, I think that uh, we can change like the education for the families to they, for them to understand that whether it's right or not to do that with the patient. But I think that the family itself, they don't consider like appropriate for us to tell them that there's nothing we can do. They start like saying that the hospital doesn't help them for anything oh, and it. the hospital is a place for, for people to die. Oh. They don't consider the hospital like a place for, for saving people, for, for help them, but they consider whether hospital What's is like it? just right. a place, the worst right. place to go. Right. So they come like really critical here. They don't... And when healthy patients come for surgery, uh -huh. elective or emergency elective, yes. su uh, surgery, 
what are the what are the family's expectations? Do they uh, do they have some serious fear about the patient dying when they come for surgery? Of course, uh, more in the in the in in the anesthetic uh, place, you know. They tell tell us if they are gonna if they're gonna be full of sleep or or are they gonna be awake or. And why are they why are they interested in that difference? Do they think that the general anesthesia is more dangerous? Yes. Yeah. Yes. So they're afraid of afraid of general anesthesia. Yes. And yeah. in, in, when we do an elect, elective surgery here, the anesthesiologist like he presents himself like ten minutes before the the uh -huh. procedure. So he's like, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna sedate you and and you know what is the surgery about and that's it he says like this is gonna happen and I'm gonna put you this but he's do they do they talk about the risks of general uh, general yes. anesthesia yes. they do yes they interact he yeah. has to tell him that that's and he always tells him like to the patient yeah. he always tell him that it's probably that he he will die but he just had to know it like it doesn't yes, matter if it is a little thing they have to yeah. do or... So patients and families are prepared for de death, yes. death after even uh -huh. minor surgery. Mm -hmm. yeah. Always the, 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 um, they tell them like, it's really minor risk, but there's but a it exi but, it exi but it exists, yeah. Yes. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I know, I think yeah, sur surgery here is very fast. Yes, it is. Yeah. Because at my hospital, a cesarean, there are a few of the older obstetricians who can do a cesarean in 20 minutes or 25 minutes, but the young ones all take 45 minutes or an hour. Or an hour. There's, a big, there's a big difference. You know, here in Guatemala, we have the uh, fetal sufferment. I don't know, if the emergency of when the fetus is like dying. Right, right, or right. The stat C section, yeah. yeah. Uh -huh. Yes, yeah. but it's really stat. They don't wash their hands. Uh -huh. They don't wash it. They no. just go. They just enter the operation room without like being sterile. Uh -huh. sterile. They just put the rope uh -huh. and they put their gloves and they just they go. But like, let's go. Yeah. And do those patients get general anesthesia because it's more yes. rapid? They do. They, they do. They, they do. Yeah. And is there typically is there a pediatrician? So in this case, the baby oh, yes, baby comes the baby is, is depressed. Is suffering. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So somebody is there to treat to, the baby. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Interesting. Interesting. So a lot of a lot of a lot of is this uh, is, uh, local uh, local yes, local yeah yeah I see so I didn't notice whether they use it doesn't look like the patient is general oh no she does have general anesthesia yeah but I, I didn't notice what they did what he did for airway yeah. But I see the I see the breathe I see the breathing circuit. Is there and there's a capnograph on this uh, the screen the yellow the yellow looks like it's the carbon dioxide. Good good equipment in this room. Yes. Yeah. But I should I should ask them whether there's anybody with fancy equipment and what happens if it breaks. Oh, yeah. I don't think anything will happen. You think it'll just be put aside, put aside in the basura? Yes. 
because no one thinks like but no one is in charge of it. It's very complicated to fix these monitors of and these 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 <laughs> your piece of furniture. <laughs> the uh, questions I had about the sort of end, end of life, so, uh, you know, our foundation, uh, President Atul Gawande, is, uh, is very interested in sort of making choices about the quality of life and respecting yes. patients' yes. wishes and, vi and visions. And just last year, wrote a book uh, about that, which is fanta fantastic, really? called Being Mortal. But those are exactly the kinds of questions. I mean, he would say, he would say we as a medical profession, never mind Guatemala in the United States, he says, do a terrible job yes. of that. In fact, I think the book is called "Being Mortal: How Medicine Fails at the End," or something like that. Or something like that. And um, so, the problem you describe about never really giving the full range of choices for patients and families to make on their own is not a problem limited to Guatemala. But uh, that book really—it's been very popular. Yes. and uh, has stimulated a lot of discussion. I think a, a lot of Americans are much more aware <clears throat> of that issue about uh, saying yes, what matters at the end. Yes. So, uh, saying it, uh, this is like as far as it goes. Right, that there is no, po no point and just because we can mm -hmm. doesn't mean we must. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. But you will be amazed because here in Guatemala, we have so much cases that if you read all the cases, you will have like a folder full of paper. Yeah. The patient has been like four years in the hospital, yeah. no one visits him, and uh -huh. you cannot yeah. give, it, give it like away because right. he, he's not conscious. So there are a lot of patients you see coming for surgery that you say there's no, po there's no point. Yes. Yeah. A lot of them. Yeah. A lot. Yeah. And sometimes they just open the patient, they see, and they close yeah. because they cannot do anything. Right. And oh yes, yeah, but yeah. we can ask. There's a lot in Guatemala that a visitor like myself does not always get to see, and often it takes the opening up and listening to to get to the heart of these difficult decisions. Despite the constant drip of coffee on my trip due to the plentiful plantations, other crops are failing due to climate change, leaving Guatemala with the sixth highest malnutrition rate in the world. That combined with ongoing violence and economic devastation due to COVID migration from Guatemala and the other members of what is referred to as the Northern Triangle, Honduras and El Salvador, people are taking the risk to migrate and live rather than stay and die. This is the topic of the conversation recently recorded with Global Health Film on the migration crisis at the US border. Just like the one in the operating theater, there are a lot of variables to understand when learning what motivates people to make life or death choices.
To carry on this conversation, head over to the news section at globalhealthfilm.org and check out journalist Anita Macri's recent conversation with the Missing in Brooks County team about the very human and sometimes fatal cost of climate migration on the Texan border. And that's all for this month. Back next month with more from my own correspondent. Do join me.